Good morning. Welcome to Warehouse. We are in week three of a series called The Kingdom of Me, and what we have set up to date is essentially an initial concept that we are often the reason that we get in the way of the life that we want, that God has a realm for us, a place to live in that is far fuller than what we want, and part of the process of experiencing the life God wants for us is learning to move away from control of certain areas of life and turning toward God. After that initial concept, Mark talked last week about the beginning of our part in the process. Today we begin to talk about what is God doing about that. If often we get in the way of the life we actually want, what is God doing about it? We'll look through music and through story and through passages in the Bible at uh, what ends up being a very, very hopeful turn. The story we're going to look at presents a picture that could be pretty bleak, but in it, for me, is one of the most hopeful parts of the Bible because it is showing the pursuit of God in the midst of our own false and wayward choices. The song today, Useless Desires by Patty Griffin, lays out that place that we can come to where we look at the choices we've made and the consequences we've brought on ourselves, are unhappy with where it's brought us, and are uncertain how to move out of it. Welcome to Warehouse. I try to never say things like, I know what you're thinking, because I have no idea what you're thinking. I mean, seriously, there's enough people in the room, I don't know what you're thinking. However, I do think, I, I don't know what you're thinking. I wasn't going to say that. However, I do think that there are certain things, a rare handful, that I'm pretty sure everybody's common experience, and this is one of them. I would be shocked if this is not your experience. If not, talk to me afterwards. I'm curious. That moment of pursuing something, going after something, wanting something, making a choice, doing an action, and getting a completely unwanted consequence. You didn't see it coming. You didn't expect it. Maybe afterwards you went like, mm, why didn't I see that coming? But you took a path. You made a choice. You did an action that you thought would bring you more. You thought it would bring you more pleasure, more life, more freedom, more something, and what you got was the opposite, a very, very unwanted consequence of your action. The simple truth is, the reality is, far too often, we are the obstacle between the deepest desires we have and actually getting them. We walk down paths that don't get us what we really want. In the song, you get the feeling that someone has walked down paths and haven't gotten what they want and has no idea what to do about it, just living with that. And I think it's really easy for us to get into places where we lament, where our life is gone, not always deeply wrong, but something off in our heart, soul, or in our circumstances, and we resign ourselves to it. Like the movie, this line in the movie, as good as it gets, maybe this is as good as it gets where you just stop and go, I make stupid choices, things don't always work out the way you want, and so that's life. The brilliantly hopeful part of the message today is that even as we create obstacles for the life that we really want, that's exactly the place that God intercedes. That's exactly the place where God comes rushing in, pursues us in order to make our hearts more alive. The places we fail the most, the place we're the most marred, the choices we've made false, that's the place where God is in the midst, 
reviving us and giving us what we couldn't get on our own and only he can bring us. And so today we're going to look at a story in the Bible where you see a character come to the end of some unwanted consequences and have this marvelous aha moment of hope. And the story is about a guy named David who was the king of Israel. He's at times been commentated, by commentators, been referred to as an everyman. And it's hard to see him as an everyman in some sense. He was really rich and he was a king. It's not exactly everyman. However, what happens in the Bible is for some reason, David, maybe more than any other figure in the Bible, his life is peeled back. The layers are peeled back and we get to peer inside. And we watch his actions sometimes turn out brilliantly and sometimes really crash and burn. The, the psalm we're going to read today is in the aftermath of crash and burn. And uh, it's Psalm 63, and it's, it's a song of worship that David wrote. He's in the desert. He's being chased, pursued by his son Absalom, who wants to put him to death and take his kingdom. Here's the backstory. A number of years before that, David, at the height of his power, while at home twiddling his thumbs while his armies were off at war, saw someone bathing on a rooftop, and she looked really good. And so he invited her over to the palace. Now, when a king invites somebody over to the palace, it's more like a command. So she came over to the palace. David had sex with her, and she got pregnant. David viewed this as somewhat of a problem only because his actions might get caught. And so Bathsheba, the woman, was married, and her husband Uriah was in the army who was off fighting while David was home with his wife. And so what David did is he told one of his commanders, this is what I want you to do. When the fighting gets fiercest, put Uriah in the front and withdraw the rest of the troops. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't, I didn't kill Uriah. It's just war cover your tracks completely and move on. His plan goes just as he wanted. He acts, goes just as he wanted. He believes in covering his tracks. Everything will be fine. He will get back the life that he wanted. And then a prophet named Nathan comes to him. All the while, while David thinks things have moved on just fine, his actions have led him exactly where he wanted. And a prophet, Nathan, comes to him and says, he tells him a story, and it's a story about somebody with a lot of power taking something away from somebody who has nothing. And David's really irritated. He goes, seriously? This, this man should be shot and tarred and feathered. And, David, and Nathan goes, that's the prophet. Are, you're not aware this is you? you? You don't know that's you. You're the one, David. You're the one who took from Uriah the only thing he had. You have everything. And because you could, in your vanity and in your false pleasure, desire after pleasure, you took the only thing he had, and then you took his life. Well, David has a moment, an aha moment, where he realizes, and he says, you're right. This is what I've done. He falls before God. He repents, which simply means he turns back to God, turns away from what he's done, from his sin. But there are consequences. Consequences come crashing into his life. The baby dies. And then God says this to him, David, because this has happened, things have changed. And the kingdom will be torn from your hand. And your family will disintegrate around you. So, as the years go by, the kingdom begins to get torn from his hand. His family fights one against the other. And then his son 
commits a coup. He chases David into the desert, and David, now the king, the great king, with power and money and wealth and prestige, sits in the desert, licking his wounds as his son comes after him to kill him. And it dawns on him that this is where I have put myself. This is not about Absalom. This is not about God. This is about me. Suddenly, the whole chain of events comes screaming into his brain of what brought him into this moment. The beginning of all these consequences were him and only him. He pursued something that he believed in that moment would give him more life. We choose what we choose, right? Nobody puts guns to our head. I mean, they might put guns to our head, but not normally. We choose what we choose. And when we choose, we do so always believing that that choice somehow will make our life better, will give us more of what we want, or why would we do it? David made a choice. He believed that choice would bring him life, and now he sits in the desert with everything gone, being pursued by his son who's trying to kill him. And he realizes in a moment of clarity, this is about me. I brought these consequences on myself. I sought life. I brought death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's where David sits. And all sorts of things could happen at that moment. Despair, blaming. It doesn't. In that moment, he has a a revelation, which is a stunning awareness of a deeper truth that God has not yet done with him. This is what the passage says. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. As David stares at the landscape before him, sitting in a desert, and he sees a land with no water that is dying, he realizes he has the moment of clarity. It's a dry and weary land. So also has been my attempt to live in the kingdom of me. When I have sought simply to create happiness in my own realm without being underneath the realm of God, it became a dry and weary land. When all the while satisfaction awaited me. One of the strike, this passage has always been one that deeply resonated with me, and one of the more striking passages to me was when David says in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. There is, to me, there's so much in that metaphor. I think, in the simple illustration, I think of when I finish eating. You know when you have that really good dinner, whatever that is for you, that really good dinner, and when you finish it and you're actually satisfied, you're not hungry anymore. You're not thinking about where to get your next meal. You're not wondering about what else you could eat. You are done eating and satisfied. 
David gets a glimpse, it rushes in, and he goes, there's actually a space that God has for me where I find satisfaction, where I'm not wanting anymore, where I'm not wondering where the next thing is, when I'm not, not asking what's next, when I'm not seeking for the next pleasure, the next experience, the next moment, when I'm content, when my soul is satisfied. And in this moment, sitting in a desert with all of his life having completely fallen apart, it comes screaming through. God wants my soul satisfied, and I can have it. Here's what struck me in this passage. As David sits in the wilderness, what dawns on him is God has been pursuing him in every single moment of his life. When he was committing adultery, God was pursuing him. When he was plotting Uriah's death, God was pursuing him. When Uriah died, God was pursuing him. When Nathan spoke to him, God was pursuing him. When David stood in a church, I beheld your beauty, your power, and your glory. When he was sitting in church, God was pursuing him. When he was laying on his bed, and the night watches, I remember you. When he was sitting on his bed, God was pursuing him. There's not been a single moment of David's life where God wasn't pursuing him, where he wasn't coming hard after him. And in the end of the verse where it says, my soul follows hard after you, and it says, your right hand upholds me. Always, even in this moment where God is now, t- uh, where uh, David's now turning back to God, what he realizes is your hand was always underneath me. In, in the Old Testament in Hebrew, right hand refers to the hand of power. It says the power of God, your presence and power has always been underneath my life. Every single moment, not a spare moment, there wasn't some consequence that happened where your hands were back off. It didn't mean God caused it, but he never departed in every moment. In the worst moments you and I have created, in all the obstacles we've thrown before, the happiness we want, God's hand has always been there, pursuing us relentlessly, coming after us. He never, ever stops. I see this picture of God when I'm in my right mind. He comes after me, bursting with joy. He watches me attempt to find satisfaction in piddly things. He watches me throw obstacles in the way of my own happiness and joy. And he comes rushing in in order to lead me to a bigger, brighter, better, fuller life. A kingdom way of life. A place where my life, my heart, my soul lives underneath the realm of God where he is my Lord and it fits. We have such strange notions of what it would mean to follow God or to to surrender to him. We think in that that somehow we lose everything. I surrender to God and I lose everything I want. We mistake who our God is. He calls us to see him as the Lord over all of our life, to live in his realm, and in so doing, we experience a relationship, one who loves us desperately and came to make our hearts alive not constricted. We constrict our lives, not him. We have this strange notion that we will find freedom by throwing off our connection to the one who made us, 
to make us to fit with him and made us to experience joy. We'll go our own way and somehow this will make us happy and it won't. And we try as we might. We try one thing after another, believing it will work. And then at some point, at some point, we realize it's a dry and weary land. And that's the critical moment. When the thought comes rushing in, I have tried living my own way. And it doesn't work. There's a better way, a fuller way. In that moment, when God is pursuing us hard, that's the critical moment. Will we turn or not? One of the key words that's used in the New Testament by Jesus to talk about having a relationship with God is repentance. All repentance means is I turn. I turn away from believing if I follow my own course of action, my own path outside of God, I'll be fine. I'll be better. We turn. We turn and believe. It's like y'all are the kingdom of God and y'all are the kingdom of me. I don't, I'll switch it this time, okay? Go around that way. We turn and discover that living under God's realm is where we'll find life. That's the moment. I wonder, sometimes I wonder as I look at my own life and my own issues, how do I get things right? Yeah, sure, I throw obstacles in my own path. How do I get them right? How will I know that God is pursuing me? What will that look like? I'm pretty sure that God's pursuit of you is going to be consistent. Right now, God is pressing on something in your life. Right now, there's an area he's pressing on hard. And he'll press on it over and over again to wake you up and to have you simply turn to him and develop relationship with him. It's unlikely that what God, God is going to do today is he's going to give some mysterious word about some bizarre thing you never knew about in your life and go, oh, really? That's where I'm out of accord with God? No, you probably know it right now. For example, this morning, this will seem small. I understand this. This morning, I was pulling out of Starbucks, and there was a guy who was pulling out of a space. And you know how the Starbucks on East parking lot is. It's very difficult to navigate. It's very small. Anyway, so he's pulling there. I'm going this way. He's, he's backing out really slowly. And I know what's going on. He's on his cell phone. I never do that. He's on his cell phone. And then he's slowly pulling out. And then he's, with his other hand, sweeping his hair out of his eyes. Now, I, I do never do that. That's true. <laughs> Michelle, that was for you. Sweeping his hair out of his eyes, talking to his cell phone, and I'm really irritated. I am. I'm like, seriously, can you not just drive the car? You just made me like five, maybe six seconds later. Now, of course, all of us laugh. Ha, ha, ha. I should handle that better. I should learn from that. Not about that. The normal Christian approach is to say, Hmm, that's true. I shouldn't allow those things to irritate me. I think I'll act better next time. Nothing to do with it. And that moment, God is pursuing me. He's going, seriously? That's the life you want. 
where because somebody who's made in my image is talking on their phone and sweeping their hand out of their eyes, you're angry. Really? Do you think this is the life I have for you? God is pressing on one point in my life. Why? He wants my heart to be his. He wants my whole soul to live in his kingdom. See, the question I ask as I looked at this passage, I asked myself the question, why is God pursuing David so hard? What is he after? He's after your heart. He's after you having a relationship with him that is deep and flourishing and that expands over all of your life that is not piecemeal and compartmentalized. And the truth is it's in those gaps and those seemingly small gaps, as well as in the large ones. Don't get me wrong. There are large gaps in our lives. In the small and in the large, what God is trying to do is to draw me away from a narcissistic life and move me into a, a relationship with him that is deep and fulfilling and covers everything. I live in his realm. He oversees my life. He is the Lord of my life, and I find my soul to fit there. It should affect everything. Not some things, everything. And every time it doesn't affect everything, it is God pressing on our souls, pursuing us with joy and with glee to bring us deeper into relationship with him and more fully into his kingdom. He's always calling us to a kingdom kind of life, always. I was reading the Charlotte Observer this morning, sports page, and as I did so, there was two stories in there about uh, Carolina Panther players. And it sort of features on them. One was on Steve Smith, who just broke the all-time yardage receiving for Carolina Panther. And it was interesting, just walking through the quotes about Steve Smith. And I know him a little bit, and so it was just sort of interesting to see the quotes that were said about him. But then there was an article about John Casey. And John Casey was the former kicker of the Panthers who was cut this year because he can't kick off far enough. Seriously, that's all it is. He's older, and he makes a lot of field goals, but he can't kick far enough. And so to have John Casey in your team means you need two kickers. Somebody to kick off and somebody to do field goals. You probably didn't need all that information, but he was cut after having been like the longest Panther ever. The story was about the new kicker, Alindo Mare, coming into town, calling John Casey. And this is what he said. I knew when I called John Casey, I wouldn't get somebody who was anger, angry and somebody who would treat me poorly. I knew what I would get. He is a genuinely nice human being. And I knew he would treat me well. Here's what struck me out of that. Not that John, John Casey would proclaim to be a follower of Jesus. What struck me about that is not necessarily that John Casey was nice to him, is that Olinda Mari knew he would be. Absolutely knew it. His character was so clear that even in the midst of the very difficult obstacle of his life, where John Casey had every right to sort of be angry and deflect his anger, anger at this other guy. It didn't happen. And Olinda Mari knew it wouldn't. In that moment, John Casey is living in the kingdom of God. His smallest actions are influenced by his relationship with Jesus. To me, that's stunningly beautiful. Such a small thing. But in the small cracks, as well as the big ones, what God is doing is he's bringing you in from pursuing avenues that seem to be right to you and to me, but so often fail us. He's bringing us in. Pursuing us 
so that he would be our Lord, so we would move into relationship with him, and so that everything would change. We pursue the smallest things. We get wrapped up in the most... We get wrapped up in things that do not bring satisfaction. When all the while, what God has for us is, you will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. He did not come to take life away. He came to give it. God pursues you right now. Right now. He wants you closer. What are you going to do? David has this aha moment where he remembers. And he turns. He turns full on to face God and he speaks to him. What are you going to do? It's either a way of life or it's not. God wants more for you. Will you receive it? Will you walk into that relationship that he offers you? Today, when we take communion, here's what happens. We're going to have bread and we're going to have wine or juice and they're to commemorate the death, and, uh, the death of Jesus Christ for our behalf. He died and his blood was spilled. And when you come forward, you have an opportunity here. God wants to pursue you in the midst of this. You have an opportunity here. For some of you, that opportunity is this clear. You know that you've taken a path that has brought unwanted consequences into your life. You're quite aware of those. Others may not be aware of it yet, or they may be, but you know you followed a path that's brought unwanted consequences. And this can be a moment where you realize that God is not going, yes, yeah, see, I told you that wouldn't work. I don't know how many times I've, I've said this. We feel like God is the junior high vice principal. I, did I tell you not to do that? I told you this wouldn't work, right? And you went ahead and did it anyway. He's not the junior high vice principal, who might be a nice person, by the way. <laughs> He's the God of the universe who loves your soul because your love is better than life. Why is it better than life? Because when I fail, when I screw up, when I bring these unwanted consequences, he sends his son to die for me. Oh my goodness. When I screw up, when I bring unwanted consequences, he sends his son to die for me and to forgive my sin. And then I take this stuff the sin, the failure, the disobedience, and the consequences. And he takes it. And he uses those moments to meet me and to draw me deeper into himself and into the relationship and into the life that he has for me. This moment of communion is one for you to go, this bread and this wine reminds me. It is true. Jesus died for me. I have brought unwanted consequences. He perished for those. And he's here right now in order to move my life forward even in the midst of what I've done. For some of you, this will be a moment that ought to shake your apathy. You have seen your relationship with Jesus as something that's just sort of, I don't know, the thing I ought to do. And what God wants you to do is to find your whole heart and soul in connection with him and with his kingdom. And this is a moment to shake your apathy. The Son of God lived and died to give you more. He's calling you in hard now.
For some of you, this is a moment for the first time. If you're honest with yourself, you've never turned toward God, ever. I say that not to be critical. It's just real. You've never turned toward God. You've never believed that he was there for you for whatever reason. Your upbringing, what you heard, it doesn't matter. For whatever reason, you never believed God was there for you and could offer you anything. And right now, he's beckoning to you. And you have that sense there's something going on and you have that sense, I think there's something more here. God is coming after you. And this can be the moment where you enter into a kingdom kind of life, where you enter a relationship with the God who made you. You simply come forward as we receive communion and you say to God, God, I want to know the forgiveness for the sin and the consequences I've caused. And I want you. And I want that full life of living with you as my Lord. Then come and receive it. Whether you're a part of warehouse or not, I invite you forward if you're ready to receive the forgiveness, the power, the relationship with Jesus. If you're not ready for that today, if that's something that still feels off and distant, I encourage you to wait, not to take communion. It's not because you'll be doing something wrong. It's more because when we take rituals with our, which are intended for power and we turn them into meaningless gestures, they tend to do violence to our heart. They deaden us. I would not have you more deadened. So wait. Consider where you are. Pray. Ask God to speak to you. But Lord, we wait in this moment for you. Even in the moments when we realize we're turning towards you, it's always been true that your right hand upholds us, that you have been the one constant who are pursuing us. You've always pursued us. You've always pursued us for our own good, for a relationship with you, for a kingdom kind of life. And we pray for that moment right now. Make our hearts and minds open and aware, sensitive to your presence here right now. I pray for you to speak to each one of our hearts with that exact, tangible, specific touch that we need to move us more into the kingdom of you. We thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus. We find our hearts freed because of that. We thank you for this time to share communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.